mentioned earlier, this is a, uh, a Sunday of new beginnings, in a sense. In our years at church, just like in schools and so many other areas of life, follow a kind of rhythm to them. And at our church, the end of August is a, is a season of new beginnings, new classes, new small groups, and, and in this case, a new sermon series, except that it's not really new. There's a sense in which we start a new series today and a sense in which we don't. The sense in which we start a new series today is that we're unpacking, beginning today, a letter written by a man named James, one of the New Testament's most beloved letters, practical, easy, accessible letter to us. There's another sense in which, though, that this is not a new series, because from near the beginning of the year, what we've been doing together is trying to understand the parts of the Bible that are known as wisdom literature. There are several books in the Old and New Testament that are categorized that way. They're, they're meant to help us be wise. And so all year we've been trying to understand how each of these books contributes to that. We've talked about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and the book of Job. And this morning, we take that wisdom series into the New Testament because James, of all the books in the New Testament, is the one that best fits into the category of wisdom. What we've said about wisdom books in the Bible is that they're meant to try to help us work the truth about who God is into the details of our lives. Wisdom is not a set of laws. Wisdom is an instinct or a skill for living well in the world as it is. Wisdom takes the things that are true and translates them into the twists and turns of life where there's no roadmap, when you just need a sense of what's right. James fits perfectly into that category. Now, we're not 100% sure who wrote this particular book. We're not sure, in other words, who this James is. He identifies himself that way in the first verse of the letter. The majority view throughout history is that this James was James the half-brother of Jesus. James, who was the leader, seems to be the primary leader, in the earliest church in all of history, the church of Jerusalem. James is, uh, this particular James, who most people believe is the one who wrote this letter, is identified in Acts as as one of the main leaders helping the church in Jerusalem figure out what it looks like to be a church. They got to figure that out. They were the first ones to try to figure that out. There's a lot of things in the letter that point towards this James. It has a very Jewish flavor to it. Some of the language, the the, the terms that he uses, the the idioms or catchphrases that he uses have a very Jewish flavor to them. It, It seems to be one of the oldest books, if not the oldest book, in the New Testament. It has a lot of marks that point to it being really early in the development of of Christianity. And if this is who it who was writing it, if it's this James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus, it also makes some sense out of the character of the letter, out of some of the things that he writes about. In the very first verse, he talks he says that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's a way of saying he's writing to the people of God. The 12 tribes refers back to the 12 tribes of Israel. They didn't exist anymore at this time, but it had become a kind of shorthand or phrase for all of God's people. And the dispersion means they're scattered to the winds. Now, one of the things that that Acts tells us, Acts chapter 11 tells us that because of some persecution, because as, as Jesus, the Jesus followers 
began to become more and more public and prominent. Because people didn't like that and started pressing in on them, they scattered to the winds. They became dispersed throughout that section of the world, through the Roman Empire. So it would make sense if James is the leader of the first church, the church of Jerusalem, and if his people, his friends, had been scattered to the winds by persecution, it would make sense that he would write a letter to them, that he would try to pastor them from a distance. This was the days before FaceTime, right? No Skype, no phones. If you wanted to continue to help new believers who were now scattered to the winds, this is what you do. You write to them. In particular, this letter is written to people who are being pressed in on from all directions. It's written to those who are being pressed in from without, who are living in hostile territory, living on foreign soil with lots of forces coming for them, trying to tear away their faith. And it's written for people who not only were facing threats, but were facing enticements from the world, living in a, in a world that had a lot to offer them if they would just conform. So he writes to them, encouraging them to stay true, to believe, even though some people are trying to, to take them out and other people are trying to win them over to hold true in the face of opposition. Now, this morning what I want to do is give you a big sense of this letter, of what's in it, how we can learn from it, to set up the next few months together. Uh, think about the letter of James as a tool. If you're going to approach a, a, a tool in your toolbox, you need to know what that tool is for, what's its purpose, and then you need to know how to use it. If you want to drive in a, a nail, you don't use a screwdriver, right? You would use a hammer. If you, want to, if you want to screw in a screw, you're going to use a screwdriver. You're not going to use a hammer. You could go for a nail with the, the handle of a screwdriver, but it's going to be pretty fruitless. It may even damage the tool. If you, if you go for a screw with a hammer, you're just, it's going to be useless. You're going to pound it out, and it won't, it won't hold true. You need to know what the tool is for, and then you need to know how to use it. And that holds true as well for any time you want to understand a text that you're reading. Anytime you come to a new part of the Bible, you need to ask, what's it here for? And then you need to ask, how would I use it if I want to get what it wants me to get? So today, what we're going to do is focus on understanding James and using James. Understanding James first, using James second. What's it here for? How can we use it? And to do that, I want to take a flyover of the first 18 verses of chapter 1. We're going to come back to those same verses next week and dig around a little bit more into the details. But it's kind of like a, a summary of the letter. So it's a good place to start. I want to begin by, by reading those first 18 verses. I'm going to ask you to please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from James chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is 
like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Said before, one of the first things you've got to ask anytime you come to a new text that you want to learn from is, what's the purpose of this text? What's it here for? And to help you connect with the purpose of James and to, and to give you a kind of rubric that you can hold on to for the rest of the series, I want to give you three W's. Three handy little W's for you to connect with what the purpose of James. The letter is meant for wisdom, for warning, and for worship. Wisdom. Warning, worship. First, if you want to understand James, you need to understand that James is here to give you wisdom. Even more, it's here to help you become a wise person, to develop the instincts of wisdom. It's here to help us pay attention to our lives. It's here to shake us out of the drift that just comes so natural to us. Where we're just making our way through our days, through our responsibilities, through the opportunities we have for fun, through the things that just have to get done. Where we're just making our way through, the, through each and every day, not really stopping to think, what am I doing with my life? What statement is my life making? What does God have to do with the things that I'm doing. James is here to shake us awake and to help us to pay attention. He wants to help us develop an instinct for living well in the world in light of who God is. Now, that has a a strong effect. This purpose has a strong effect on what's in the letter. So one of the things you'll notice that's not there is much theology. If you read much of many of Paul's letters, think about the letter to the Romans or the letters to the Corinthians. One of the things you'll notice is that Paul definitely cares about life in the world, about how people are behaving and treating one another, what they're doing with their lives. But he also cares a lot about who God is, about what God has done, 
about Jesus, his nature, his promises. He spends a lot of time getting into the theory, the details behind uh, who God is and what he's done for us. James doesn't do any of that. And it's not because he doesn't care about who God is and that we understand him. He just assumes a certain amount of agreement already about who God is and what he's done. He starts there and moves to, okay, if these things are true, then here's what your life will look like. He goes straight to the, here's what your life should look like. He mentions God often. He mentions Jesus and calls himself, as we read in verse 1, he calls himself a servant or a slave of Jesus as his Lord. But he's not going to talk to us about how Jesus is divine and human. He's not going to talk to us about Jesus' death and what it accomplished. He's going to assume a lot of that. He wants us working Jesus into our lives. He's trying to help his friends understand how to live in light of what's true. One of the things we've said about wisdom from the beginning of this series, when we were, especially back when we were talking about Proverbs, is that wisdom is here. Wisdom is given to us, the wisdom books, for the gap that exists between what's true about God and what's going to happen to us on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, day in, day out. There's truth about God, and then there's where we are, the circumstances of our lives, and there's a gap there that's got to be bridged. How do I get my life and its details lived more under the spotlight of what's true about God. Wisdom is there to help us bridge that gap. Here's an analogy we used at the beginning of the series. I think it works really well for understanding James too. Think about all that's involved in safe driving. Not that we have a lot of experience with that living here in Nashville as we do. But, but safe driving involves a certain amount of theory, okay, of ideas that you need to learn. So you need to know something about you know, cars, there's a theory behind good driving, which engines that work, the physics of acceleration and steering, the engineering, the civil engineering behind roads and how they're laid out to help traffic flow go in a, in a, in a helpful direction, uh, the signs that are put, where they're put, with the messages that are on them, rules about, about how you should turn and when. Now, so, so, so there's some theory there, right, some truth about safe driving. But there's a gap between that theory about what's true, between how an automobile works or how the roads are laid out, and the decision you have to make when you're facing a left-hand turn opportunity with oncoming traffic. What you've got to decide in that moment is whether or not it would be wise to turn before the traffic or wait till it passes. When you're faced with the yellow light, You've got to decide, is it wise under the circumstances for me to gun it or for me to slow down? The theory is not going to make that decision for you. You need an instinct. James is here not to tell us how the car engine works or why the streets are laid out the way they are, but to help cultivate in us an instinct for knowing whether to gun it or to pull back, for whether to take the left-hand turn or to just hold steady until the traffic has passed. He wants us wise. So he gets straight to the point. What we're going to read in James sounds a whole lot like Proverbs, actually. In fact, I I think the best way to describe what James feels like to me, anyway, is a hybrid between Proverbs, with all these little pithy statements about all sorts of subjects in life, a hybrid between Proverbs and a good sermon. It's going to sound very sermonic. So 
it'll sound like Proverbs, for example, something like 50 plus imperative verbs in a five-chapter letter. An imperative verb is a command. There are 50 plus commands, do this, don't do this, in a five-chapter letter. A lot like Proverbs. There are a lot of pithy statements throughout James, a lot like Proverbs. There's the same quick jumping around from subject to subject. Maybe you noticed that, even in the first 18 verses that we read just a minute ago. Did you notice how many times he changed his subject? If you read it at all in Paul's letters, what you'll know is that sometimes he'll carry on the same subject for multiple chapters, unpacking it in all of its nuance and its twists and turns. James has hit 10 subjects in the first 10 verses, it seems like. So chapter 1, he jumps from trials and how they're good for you to wisdom and why you ought to pray for it. He jumps to money and the swiftness of money's passing. He jumps then to temptation, to sin. Then he jumps to how we need to be grateful for gifts. He jumps from there to how you ought to use your words and how you can recognize where pure, genuine religion shows up. Chapter 2 talks about favoritism, that you shouldn't show favoritism for the rich over the poor, not if you're with Jesus. Chapter chapter 3 has fascinating stuff on the power of the tongue and the need to tame it. Chapter 4 jumps from quarrels to prayer to humility to the need to resist the devil to a warning against thinking that you know the future. It's a lot like Proverbs, in other words. You just, your head is just constantly turning as you read through this, jumping from subject to subject. That's because he's interested in wisdom. He's not developing a theological treatise. He wants you to know what you should do with yourself when the situation presents itself to you. James is... Also, a lot like a sermon. I mean, it, it's got tons of personal address. You'll notice he's, he's talking to the people he's writing to. He's not just talking about subjects. He's talking to them. He's their pastor. So he asks a lot of questions. You'll notice through James a lot of direct personal questions, asking them to think about themselves. They're not rhetorical questions. They're not just for the sake of argument. He's telling them, think about it. Think about your life. full of great illustrations. Like any good sermon, James is thinking carefully about how to get people to connect with the points that he's trying to make. So, for example, in chapter 3, where he's talking about the tongue, you've got, you've got the bit in the mouth of a horse to help you understand the tongue. You've got the ships on the sea guided by a small rudder to help you understand the tongue. You've got fire, the tongue as a fire that burns down everything in its path. These vivid images that James is constantly pointing us to to help us connect. So what is James for? James is for wisdom. It's written sort of like Proverbs, but sort of like a sermon, directly to his friends and over the ages, directly to you, to try to help you know how to live your life in a way that honors God. It's going to help us live well in the world. That's the first thing it's for. Here's the next thing it's for. James is for warning. It's for warning. So, James' primary concern throughout this letter comes up again and again and again. And it's always underneath the things he's writing about, even when it doesn't come up. His main concern is that you, friends, you, 
not settle for a belief in the truth that never changes how you act. Not settle for a kind of faith that's a faith in name only. That makes no difference to how you live. Because here's what James is going to argue to you. Here's the warning he's going to throw in your face over and over again. If what you believe doesn't affect how you live, then you don't really believe it in the first place. If what you believe doesn't change how you live, if it doesn't show up in your behavior, then you don't really believe it. And what you think of as faith is just a cheap substitute that won't do you any good. Heard a, uh, uh, saw another uh, pastor pointed to a great example for this, for, for what James means by faith. Back in the early days of skyscra- skyscrapers, right? Big, tall office buildings. People could not yet imagine a kind of glass that was thick enough to serve as a wall. It's basically what happens in skyscrapers, right? It's just floor to ceiling, and each floor panel of glass they started developing these skyscrapers really early you know a hundred years ago and more in those days people had that really cheap plate glass sometimes old houses still have it. it's kind of wavy really fragile our house has a couple of these and it terrifies us anytime our boys try to pull down the window because we know it's not going to take much much of a thud at the bottom for that thing to just collapse that's what people in the early days of skyscrapers thought about glass so imagine you, you get stuck in the cubicle in a 1920s skyscraper that happens to be right up next to the glass wall. Imagine what you're thinking. I mean, all it would take is a good storm to come through and break that window. And then you're standing next to a 30-foot, 30 30-floor 30 drop, potentially. What are you going to do in, 19, in the 1920s? Well, you're not going to sit at that desk is what you're going to do. You're going to hover back next to the wall where it's nice and safe. So this, this article talked about how they, they tried to convince these people that it was really safe. Like, you don't have to be afraid. You can go sit by the wall. That they brought it, one of the things they, one of the steps they took when nothing else was working was they brought in the, one of the engineers, structural engineers, who was responsible for building the building to, to prove to them that this is, this is going to be safe. You don't have to be afraid. And what he did to prove to them that it was going to be safe was he had them stand against the, the, the far wall, in the middle wall, away, way away from the glass, and he took a full-on run, and he smashed his whole body straight into that glass panel. Of course, he bounced off of it. Probably had to have some shoulder surgery after that, but he bounced off of it, and he proved to them, not only will it hold you, I'm going to put my whole life on the line that this is going to hold you. He had faith in the stability of that window. And the only kind of faith in Christ that does anybody any good is a faith like that that's willing to run full steam against either being held by Christ or plummeting to your death one way or the other, but I'm all in. Now, if you have that kind of faith, the only kind of faith that does anybody any good then James is telling you on page after page of this letter, it's going to change how you live. Like in, in, in this analogy, the throwing yourself against the glass is in choosing to handle quarrels differently or 
choosing not to say that thing you really do want to say because you know it's going to be hurtful. Or choosing to treat other people who have less money than you or more money than you differently than you would if it weren't for Christ. Whether or not you really have a body against the glass on a 30-story building kind of faith shows up in all sorts of marks that James introduces us to. One of the interesting things, though, is that it, it shows up in relationships more often than, than any other way. James, one, one writer put it, as one writer put it, uh, James is a book about relationships. All through it. Especially as, it, as chapter 1 molds into chapter 2. He's going from subject to subject, but the, t- the, the, the thread that ties them together is it's how we treat one another. How we treat one another shows whether or not we've got genuine faith. What he's concerned about is that you might settle for something less. I want to point you to a couple examples. You've seen it even in the passage that we read this morning. He says that we ought to be joyful in trial, verses 2 and 3, because it's purifying us. It's producing a maturity or a steadfastness in us. In other words, you've got bigger concerns in your life than whether you're comfort, comfortable or not. Deception, self-deception is a bigger problem that you're facing than discomfort or even death. Verse 8 warns against the man who is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. The guy who says one thing and does another. Verse 16 warns against being deceived. Do not be deceived, beloved brothers. Verse 22 Warns against being only hearers of the word. Deceiving yourselves. There it is again. Deceiving. Verse 26 of chapter 1. Warns against somebody thinking they're religious. But not bridling their tongue. And describes that person as one who is deceiving his heart. He's convinced himself he's one way when he's really another. Then chapter 2 verse 14 sums it up. Sums up James' concern. What good is it? He asks. If someone says he has faith but does not have works. In other words, if the faith doesn't change anything, can that faith save him, he asks. And James' answer over and over is a resounding no. That faith cannot save him. So friends, you're going to be challenged in this letter to ask of yourself, do I have a faith that saves Or am I self-deceived? It is possible to think that you're a Christian and not be a Christian. Faith is not just a mental assent, a saying yes to a series of statements or truths. Faith is expressed in action. What you do shows what you really believe. It's a dangerous thing, friends, to assume that you're with Jesus just because you once prayed to say that you wanted to be with Him. Or even because you were once baptized. Or maybe because you've never even really imagined not being a Christian. That's a dangerous reason to think you're okay. James is going to warn us against drifting, against assuming, against never pressing forward for life for a life where belief about Jesus comes into line with the things we do. 
All right, so James is for wisdom, and it's also for warning, because he doesn't want us settling on a faith that does nobody any good. And finally, James is for worship. What we've said already brings us straight to this point. Faith that's genuine leads to a life of wisdom. Faith breeds wisdom. If, If you really believe in Jesus, it'll change how you interact with your world, the things that you do. And faith that's breeding wisdom is a faith that glorifies God. So worship in the New Testament is not singing. Singing is a good way to worship Him, but it's not what worship is. It isn't coming on a Sunday morning like this one, sitting in this room and singing, hearing, praying together. That's not what worship is in the New Testament. No, Worship is, is something that's in all of your life. Worship is something you're called to do with your whole self. In everything you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Paul says. And James backs him up. James calls us to a way of life that shows God is what we value most. A way of life that tries to celebrate Him in the ins and outs of what we do. A, a, a way of life that tries to make Him look good. We're, we're, we're helping, helping others see how beautiful He is, is what guides us in how we, how we do what we do. So, so this notion shows up in the passage we read in verses 17 and 18. He's laying the groundwork for it there. He says, he, he reminds them, that every good and every perfect gift comes from above. In other words, you don't have anything that God didn't give you. There's nothing you can take credit for in your life. It's all from Him. So you need to remember that He is the source and that you belong to Him. That all that you are and all that you have is ultimately His. It's really about Him. He's the one, verse 18 says, who brought us forth and gave us life. Talking here about new birth about coming to see Jesus, to believe in Him, about being born again. That comes straight from His hand. That's His gift. And when He puts that mark on you, when He gives you new life to see Christ as beautiful and valuable, then that's a life He has claimed for Himself. He wants that life on His mission, following His principles for a life that glorifies Him. We're a new creation. We represent what he's doing. We're first fruits, verse 18 says. We're the sign of what's to come. So our lives are not our own. Like Our lives, if we're with him, if we have a faith that works, is, is a life that worships the God who redeems and remakes. We get to be a foreshadowing of what he's doing in all of the world from now throughout all time. And a good example of this comes out in chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10. Here is, he's talking about the tongue. And he talks, he talks about the fact that with this tongue, verse 9 says, With this tongue we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Same tongue. Praise on one day or in one conversation. Cursing in the next one. James, James is telling us that means the praise itself was useless. If, if you can use the same tongue to praise and to curse, then you were never genuinely praising God to begin with. You thought of religion as something you could check off of a box. I'll go in, say these words, sing these songs, then I can move on to living my life in the way that I want to. I can treat people in the way I want to treat them. James is saying, no, 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 you don't, you don't, you don't check your worship at the exit door. It, it goes with you into how you treat people. 
From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, verse 10 says of chapter 3. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. There it is. That's what James is going to be pointing us to over and over. It ought not be like that. What ought to be, if you've been marked by, given life by God, you ought to bear the family resemblance. I mentioned earlier that, that there's not a whole lot of theology in James. One of the things that is there, that he comes back to over and over, when he talks about God, he mostly calls him, often calls him Father. I think one of the reasons he does that in a letter where he's trying to help us know what, what it looks like to live in light of who God is, is that he wants us taking on the family resemblance. The way that we treat one another, the way we live in the world, what wisdom will look like for us is a reflection of God, of his beauty, of who he is and what he has done for us. Children do reflect their fathers for good or ill. Sometimes it's a beautiful thing. I love the way when my, when my oldest son smiles, he looks like my wife. He's got her genes, I can tell. There's something beautiful about that family resemblance. When my older son has trouble taking any word without argument, he resembles his father. And it's not pretty. And it's not pretty because I'm not. One way or another, children do reflect their parents. James is trying to say, if you're really with God, if he really is your father, if your faith in him is genuine, it's not whether you'll look like him in the way you treat one another. It's how you will look like him. And the letter is trying to show us where godliness shows up in life. Here are examples, one after another after another, of places where you will resemble him. Not if, but will resemble him if you're really with him. James is for wisdom, it's for warning, and it's for worship. And here's the last thing I want to say. This is how I think we've got to use it if we want to use it well. That's the tool. That's what the tool is for. Here's how to use the tool. How can we press into what James brings us? How can we together try to shape our lives by his message and be changed? There are three things I want to point you to. If we want to use James well, we first got to use, use it with honesty. We got to read this book with honesty. Because we have a lot of incentive built into us to dodge the things that James is going to say. We have a whole lot of incentive to treat James as a book written for somebody else. Just like with Proverbs. Because James is shining light into areas of our lives that we would rather stay shaded. He's shining light into what we do with our money. Isn't that my business? Oh, it, it, no. If you have faith, you bear the family resemblance. He, he's going to shine light on our envy of one another. Wait, isn't that something that's just sort of in me? I don't, I don't show that, do I? Like it or not, the way you think about each other that's going to show the family resemblance. He's going to shine the light on our words. Doesn't authenticity mean I should say whatever I feel? No. No, your words will bear the family resemblance if you're with him. If 
friends, what we've got to do is, is fight the temptation to think James is talking about somebody else. But come to it ready to be exposed as a first step towards a deeper and more fulfilling and more God-honoring and more life-giving faith. So use James. Use this tool with honesty. Secondly, use this tool in community. Use this tool in community. See, here's the thing. I mentioned earlier, James comes back over and over and over again to the problem of deception, of self-deception. What he's worried about is that you'll think you have faith when you don't. He's worried that you will deceive yourself. But the nature of self-deception is that you don't see it. So what good is a warning against self-deception if you can't see your self-deception? Well, what you need is you need friends. Friends who do see your self-deception. Friends who are close enough to you to see what you would rather not see about yourself, what you think maybe you've hidden, even from yourself. You need to do, you need to do James kind of self-analysis with friends who love you, who are for you, who aren't going to reject you or move on from you if they see you for who you are, but who love you enough to be honest with you about what they see. And here's, here, here is where you can help your friends. You can help them by inviting them to speak honestly into your life by making it easy for them. Wisdom, we, we said, one of the things we've said all along, uh, we, we said this a bunch in Proverbs, but even, even through the other books as well, that wisdom, one of the things that marks those who are, who are wise is that they don't see themselves as wise. They're always looking for more wisdom. They always want more. So they're constantly looking for insight that others can give them into where they truly stand. So those who want to grow wiser know they have nothing to defend. They know that they've got no need to pretend. On their own, not wise. Cat's out of the bag. So help me. They know that what they really want always is better self-awareness. One of my favorite images for what we're like by nature is uh, uh, one author pointed to is, is a kind of carnival mirror. You know these mirrors? You walk up to and, 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 and they distort your features. Sometimes, sometimes you have this huge head and a tiny body or you have a huge middle section and tiny head, tiny legs. Depending on where you are, your perspective changes, but it's not accurate. It doesn't, you're not getting a clear read on what other people are seeing. That our self-perception because of how sin deceives us, is about as accurate as a carnival mirror. We just don't see ourselves as other people do. We don't see what's really there. So we need each other. We need to be confident enough in Christ to, to invite one another to speak in. And I would encourage you guys just to use James's subjects for that purpose as a guide. So, so for the next three months, we're going to be going week by week through the different subjects that James treats. I would encourage you to ask your friends about each one of the subjects. And every time we get through one, Invite them over coffee or, or text or whatever. What do you think? Do some analysis of me. Use your small groups for that. Talked earlier about how small groups are starting back up. Uh, and we would love for all of you to participate. If you haven't before, please do this year. It's a wonderful way to help other people and to be helped by other people. This is what small groups are for. Asking others to speak into my life. To tell, them what, tell me what they see. Here's the last thing I'll say. If you want to use James well, you've got to use it with honesty, in community, and in the light of Christ. 
all of us, if we're honest and if we take this series seriously, all of us are going to be convicted that we aren't what we claim to be, that we're hypocrites. So we're going to be, we're going to need to be reminded Over and over again, we're going to need to be reminded that Jesus is for us. This series is here to remind us why we need a Savior. We're going to need to be reminded over and over that we have the Savior that we need. Because this book is going to show us that we are not living the lives that we ought to. Therefore, it is creating a craving in us for the one who lived the life we ought to have lived. He did live it. And he gave it as a gift to us. It stands as our record before the Father. So we don't have to be afraid of noticing where our lives don't measure up to his standards. If we're confident in who Christ is for us, then we're able to shine the light that James wants to shine into all of our lives. Be honest about where we're not, what we ought to be. And then to to be fueled by our joy in Christ to becoming more of what we ought to be. So one of the things James says is that Action comes from faith. He says that faith without works is dead. But what that means is that true works come from living faith. If you want to live a life, if you want works that are bearing the family resemblance, if you want works that make God look good, then the way to get there is to feed a living faith. To feed your joy and your satisfaction and your gladness in all that Jesus is for you. And what better way to feed that living faith than to recognize deeper and deeper and deeper how badly you need him. Jesus' mercy is always going to be abstract for you. It's always just going to be words that you sing and songs that you halfway mean. Until you realize, I need a savior. I don't deserve to live. And friends, James is going to make that point for you over and over again. You are not what you ought to be. That's why you need Jesus who was what you ought to be for you. Use that gladness in who Christ was for you to fuel a faith that runs for a life that looks like him. And you'll be using James in exactly the way that James meant for you to. Father, we need your help if we're going to get what we need to out of this study together. So we pray to you for eyes to see, for hearts that will melt under the truth of your word, for lives that will start to reflect in our community, in our relationships with one another, the beauty of your character and the steadfastness of your love for us in Jesus. Help us by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.